You're listening to the sermon podcast of Galveston Bible Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit galvestonbible.org. But mostly, from wherever you're listening, we hope that the Lord ministers to you through this week's message. We have your Bible, Psalm 91, is where we're going to hang out today. Uh, a couple of you have been asking about my, my beautiful bride. Uh, she is in Florida right now. There is a, uh, a launch coming up uh, next Thursday, actually, and so... Uh, she's over there. I asked her what she'd be doing, and she, uh, after the fifth word that I didn't understand, I'll just tell you, space stuff. So she's going to be doing space stuff. So that's why she's not here, but she'll tune in online. Um, it's great to be back at uh, GBC. It's good to see faces that I haven't seen in a long time. I really feel loved when I come here. I am here today for your joy. I didn't say happiness. I said joy, and there's a big difference, and we're going to explore that today. Because happiness is fickle. Happiness is is what we get with different things, the created things that God gives us. But joy is sustaining. Joy carries you through anything. You can have joy at all times. And that's what this psalm is about today, Psalm 91. It's how to have joy, how to have peace during the trials and tribulations that we experience. It's immensely important, and it's very often misunderstood. Let's go to the text, Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and bulwark. You will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day, of the pestilence that stalks in darkness or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. A thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. For you have made the Lord my refuge, even the most high your dwelling place. No evil will befall you nor will any plague come near your tent. For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear up your hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you will trample down. Because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With a long life, I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, that my words would clearly and accurately describe your attributes and your character. Break down the barriers around our hearts. Let your spirit flow through this place. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, folks, so this psalm is about protection. This is about divine protection. And the way I'd like to to kind of approach this is talking about understanding divine protection, how we misunderstand divine protection, and then living under divine protection, most importantly. We begin with understanding divine protection. David is writing here, and he uses a lot of metaphors to describe God. 
He begins with the shelter. God is a shelter. That Hebrew word, seter, literally means secret place. It's a secret place. It's used in 1 Samuel 19.2. Jonathan told David, my, th- my father Saul is trying to kill you. Be on guard. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. So immediately we have this idea of God as a secret place, a secret area that we can go to to seek joy or peace, freedom from whatever it is that is troubling us. And the metaphors describing God continue, most high, almighty, refuge, fortress. All these are metaphors that David uses for God. The most important one is in verse 4, the most descriptive. His wings, under his wings you may seek refuge. The metaphor of God as an eagle or a mother bird. Deuteronomy 32.11, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young. He spreads his wings and caught them. He carried them on his pinions. Ruth 2.12, may the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Psalm 17.8, hide me in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 36.7, the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 57.1, my soul takes refuge in you and in the shadow of your wings. So God's described as an eagle. God is described as this mother bird that we can seek shelter underneath him, underneath his wings. It's very powerful language, but it also conveys tenderness. And then we have some of the verbs that David uses to describe what God does. He delivers in verse 3. He covers in verse 4. He guards in verse 11. He rescues in verse 15. All these things God is doing, and if we could be honest, maybe in the last year, has it felt like God has been doing these things in your life personally? I mean, how often are we saying, oh God, what, where are you? What is going on? And so we struggle with this protection, that this divine protection that God claims to have over us, and yet it doesn't feel like that's happening in our lives. I can remember flying a mission in Afghanistan several years ago, and we were operating over a, uh, a forward base. The Afghan National Army was getting ready to deploy from this base. We were overhead at 24,000 feet, and they did not want to deploy because they couldn't see us. They didn't want to move out of the base because they felt like they couldn't see the protection that was above and so at 24,000 feet, we dropped down to 14,000 feet, a couple wing rocks, and then they finally realized, okay, they're up there, and they push out on that day's mission. It's fascinating to me that they, they couldn't understand that the lethality that we can employ from above doesn't depend on altitude. And yet the love and care of God does not depend on whether we see him in our lives. So how do we get divine protection wrong? How do we misunderstand it? It's misinterpreted by preachers, Christian leaders, because there's some pretty sweeping statements. Do you mean to tell me that if no arrow will land on me that I'll be free from violence for the rest of my life? If no pestilence will ever affect me that I'll be free from disease for the rest of my life? Is that what you're meaning to tell me? And so the implication is, verse 2, if I trust in God, verse 10, no evil will befall me. 
And so I've seen preachers twist this and turn it around to say, evil is happening in my life, therefore I must not be trusting in God. It's a very simple and heretical claim to say that because bad things are happening in your life, you're not trusting in God. And a lot of the ways that they get this wrong is through this idea of blessings. And we have this, this idea of blessings even among us as, as church believers. Oh, man, how you doing? I'm blessed. You know, the churchies, the words that you need to say. Uh, I'm blessed, man. Things are going great in my life. What were the blessings that you received? Well, uh, you know, this career or this job, the great guy, the great girl. Look at these blessings. And it becomes this material thing. This idea of blessings as these good things that come into our life when throughout the text of the Bible, what we see is that blessings are often trials. I mean, doesn't James say, count it all joy when trials come into your life? And so some of the blessings that we receive are those trials. And preachers just jack this up all the time. They come in, especially to the prison system where you have men that are hurting and need help. And they come in and they shout out, Jeremiah 29, 11, God has a plan for you. If you would pray, you'd get out of prison in time. It's egregious. All the while in Jeremiah 29, 11, missing chapters 1 through 28, where God is saying, you guys are in sin, you're in sin, you're in sin, you're wicked, you're wicked. I'm bringing you through some pestilence. I'm going to bring you through some serious trials. But on the other end of that, I know the plans I have for you. I'm going to take you through the trial and bless you on the other side. Acts 3, 26 adds more clarity to this idea. God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. This is Luke writing about the Abrahamic promise of Jesus. Jesus is the servant who comes to turn you from your wicked ways, and that is a blessing. That's repentance, and y'all know it's not fun. Anyone that has ever had an addiction or struggled with a sin issue knows that repentance hurts. But yet that's a blessing. That's a blessing as God gently yet lovingly cleans us up. So preachers get this wrong. Church leaders get this wrong. Satan misinterprets this verse. We see this in Luke 4, 9. And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, this is Jesus, uh, Satan speaking to Jesus, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. Verse 11 from today. And on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Verse 12. Now, I always feel like whenever I talk about Satan, I need to have a little just kind of time out. Like, here's, here's what Satan is and what he's not. Okay, let's look at the Bible and see what, it, what Satan is uh, so we don't blow this up. He's referred to as Satan 34 times. He's Diabolos 34 times, the Greek diabolical. That just means liar. He's the accuser. He's the adversary. He's the angel of light. He's Beelzebub, the devil, the dragon, the father of all lies. Lucifer, the old serpent. 
prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2, 2. If, if you haven't noticed a little trend here, he can lie and that's it. That's where his power comes from. It's a soft power. It's like the media today. All they can do is spout lies and that's it and really just kind of stir things up. But they don't have any control other than that. They're like, well, who are you getting your, your, your media from? I'm not going there on this sermon. In the Gospel of John, he was referred to the three times as the ruler of this world. He can torment us. That's a thorn in the flesh. We still don't know exactly what that was that Paul was dealing with. He can tempt us. The context there is regarding self-control in marriage Paul advises the Corinthians in marriage to not abstain from sexual congress for too long lest you be tempted. Married people, you're welcome. Single people, don't have sex yet. My favorite is Luke twenty-two thirty-one. Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. In your ESV text, if you're reading that, it just says demanded, but the Greek word... Exciteo implicates permission. It's like demanding with permission. It's like when I say to my wife, baby, going out with the boys Friday night. Is that cool? <laughs> it's because it's this reminder that God is the creator and Satan is a created thing. And so Satan only has as much control as God allows him to have. This is incredibly important, folks. Don't miss this. C.S. Lewis said that there's two errors that we make when it comes to the devil. One is overestimating him. The devil made me do it. And the other is underestimating him. To think that you believe in a supernatural good but not a supernatural evil is insane. But yet then to accurately understand biblically what Satan can do when you are signed and sealed and your name is written in the book of life, all he can do is steal your joy. He can lie to you. That's it. We've got to see this. It's immensely important. He knows scripture and he can bloop, pop a piece of scripture out, form a doctrine around it, and then get you and I to believe that. This idea that when things are going wrong in our lives, God is somehow unhappy with us is on its face, egregious and heretical. But we, the fault position of our heart is to go in that direction. So we also misinterpret this. Because we'll, we'll say bad things are happening in my life, therefore God must be unhappy with me. That's where our hearts go. I mean, we, we, we know the promises of God, but then deep down something bad happens over and over and over again in our lives. We're like, oh, what, what is wrong? Do I have some sin in my life? Is God upset with me? So we misinterpret it. Now, most folks would never really say that. You never come out and say, I don't trust God or I don't believe in God's goodness, but that's what your actions actually are, are, are saying. Your actions when you say, uh, he hurt me, she hurt me. Why is this happening to me, God? Why is this happening to me? Why did I lose a loved one? Why do I have this disease? It goes on and on and on. And the center point of every sentence I just said was me, I. 
Martin Luther said, this is a Latin phrase, incurvitus than se, which is turned in on itself. The human heart is turned in on itself. You and I have a natural propensity to think about ourselves. And so one of the most dangerous things that's perpetuated today in, in circles out there is this idea of self-esteem, or that you need to love yourself. Y'all, we don't need any help loving ourselves. In fact, most of the problems in your life are because you love yourself too much. Huh? You love you some you. I'm serious. You're on your mind from the minute you wake up to the minute you go to sleep. We are turned in ourselves. Our hearts are turned in ourselves. And the minute that you accept Jesus Christ, it's it's beginning to walk this path of thinking of yourself less. And it's a hard path. Because it's preached at us all the time. It's, I mean, it's constant. The messaging about self-esteem, it's all selfish regardless. I don't deserve this. This shouldn't be happening to me. I deserve this. This should be happening to me. It's pride on either end of the street. And then we also have this church leaders butchering this, like Danny Gokey, 89.3. When you learn how to love God with all your heart, then you can learn how to love yourself. And when you learn how to love yourself, then you can learn how to love others. He just rephrased Jesus' commandment to love God and uh, love others. Find in here, I beg you, find in here any passage there that says you need to love yourself. You never will because it's not in there because you don't need help loving yourself. So we can misinterpret these ideas about why stuff is happening to me in the midst of the calamity or the tragedy because we're focused on ourselves, okay? So we misinterpret it. Mark 7, 15, brilliant idea about the human nature. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. Look at me. Nothing can make you mad. No person, no event, no circumstance can make you mad. Nothing can make you anxious. Nothing can make you fearful. Those are choices because the desires in your heart are trusting something else other than God. You have a love. You have an over-desire. You have a demand. It's not being met, and therefore, you're willing to sin to get it. And sin is anger, worry, fear, anxiety. All of those are sin. Y'all, we are some wicked people. We are some wicked people. And, it, and, and the whole point of God is to take those, those, the, the sinful nature of our heart and clean it off and remove it so that we can focus on God and allow him to put a new heart in us and then change us into the image of his son who is selfless and perfect and pleasing to others in all situations. So there's nothing that is within you that can, or correction, there's nothing outside of you that can defile you. It is all within our hearts. So how do we move forward now living under divine protection? We have to embrace the tension. Psalm 91.10, no evil will befall you with Matthew 16, 24, pick up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. 
So when we live in the tension of those two verses, we can better understand how Scripture, we can use Scripture to interpret Scripture and understand what this divine protection means. Let's go to Job, the book of Job. He was blameless, upright, God-fearing. And in one afternoon, he loses his house, his property, his belongings, his family. So just real quick recap, chapters 2 and 3, Job loses everything. 3 through 37, his friends come up to him, his colleagues, and say, there must be sin in your life. All this stuff is happening to you. And then chapter 38, God comes to Job. And so in chapters 2 and 3, when everything goes down in Job's life, my wife and I, we call that the great equalizer. Kind of puts some of our first world problems into perspective, right? Had a bad day at work, didn't get that promotion. Did your house burn down and you lose your kids too? No. Okay, great equalizer, good, perspective. Now, saints, there are problems that we deal with that are real and living and they hurt. But we also live in the richest country in the world and so many of our problems that we have are not really problems, they're kind of first world issues. So it's good to have an equalizer there in Job 2 and 3 to put our problems into perspective. So Job loses everything. His friends come up to him. His wife comes up to him and says, curse God and die. And Job says, you speak foolishness. The Hebrew word literally means nonsense. What you just said didn't say anything. And it's important because what Job is saying to her is that if God exists, what does it matter for the finite to curse the infinite? And if God doesn't exist, who are you cursing? That's why it's nonsense. His friends come up, they offer all that ridiculous human wisdom, and then finally God the Father shows up in Job chapter 38, and it's beautiful. He says, who is this who darkens counsel without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man. I will instruct you, and then you will answer me. It's beautiful. That's, that's what should be on your coffee cup, not Jeremiah 29, 11. Stand up. Act like a man, be a strong woman. I'm gonna ask you the questions. Where were you when I commanded the sun to rise? He just walks through all these things that he did in creation as if to say, why are you questioning what I had planned for you? As terrible as it was. I mean, just the fact that the father shows up and asks a series of questions is telling because Jesus would always approach his inquisitors with questions. He's unraveling the starting point. You see, he's unraveling the presuppositions and those presuppositions that we carry into our thought processes about what our life should be like and our expectations for our life. God is slowly unraveling those for Job. Now, we know in chapter 1 the reason why God the Father allowed Satan to tempt Job like that, but he doesn't. He never sees it, even until the end of his life. He simply says, your ways are higher than mine. I don't deserve to understand why you do the things you do. But God the Father is also saying something to Job. He's saying, will you only believe what you can comprehensively understand? And if you don't comprehensively understand why you're going through something, will you not believe in God? Conversely, God is a way that we can see why problems are occurring 
As G.K. Chesterton said, God is like the sun. You cannot look at it, but without it, you cannot look at anything else. What about the Joseph story? Genesis 37 through 50. In the Joseph story, Joseph, the youngest son, sold into slavery, actually tossed into a pit by his brothers, sold into slavery, works his way out and up the uh, Egyptian kind of chain of command, only to be lied against and thrown into prison again. And he works his way back up until he's co-ruler of Egypt. And in his famous words to his brothers in Genesis 50, 20, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. It's in the light of these two stories that we can understand Romans 8, 28. Again, another verse that is very, very misinterpreted. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Notice here that God is not, the writer is not talking about a superficial, bad things happen, but really there's some good in the bad thing. No, no, that's way too trite. That's way too simplistic. Bad things are bad things. Headlines are inundated with those evil things. And yet, what Paul is saying is that somehow God, in his power and in his majesty, can bear upon the terrible things that happen to us in such a way that from the vantage point of eternity, when we look back, we will see that it's better having had those things occur than if they did not occur. God has the power to do that. That's how he can make all things work together. Luke 21, 16 through 18, another very telling verse here. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives, your soul. The Greek, suke, which is that part of you that's immaterial and has eternal value. Your soul, you can gain possession of your soul through your endurance, through the trials. So here's, here's the implication here. If you love anything more than God, that has possession of your soul. Anything you love more than God, you have, that has possession of your soul. So you can believe in God, you can pray to God, you can come to church, but if something else is in possession of your soul, that's a created thing. It's called an idol. Idols change. When your idol is threatened, you're going to be nervous, anxious, fearful. You're going to have anxiety because you're placing something of ultimate worth into your heart that doesn't belong there. It was never meant to be there. Only God is supposed to be there. What are the idols that we chase after? Career, spouse, Nowadays, it's our sexual identity. But what about your career? How do you know if your career, if you're making an idol of your career? How do you take criticism? When someone come and, comes to you and tells you you did a horrible job, is it, okay, let me hear what I need to do better, or is it, but you don't know, you write back on them. Yeah, well, you, you do this, or you do that. The heart 
never misses a chance for self-justification, ever. I think one of the worst things we can tell our children is what do you want to be when you grow up, as if the occupation you have is your identity. It's very dangerous. Your career, your spouse, a lot of kids here today, college kids, I'm calling you kids because you look young to me, and there's this myth, thank you, Jerry Maguire, of the one who is like out there, it's this mythical guy, this great girl, and when I meet that great guy, that great girl, everything is going to be amazing. We're going to fall in love, and it's just going to be Amazing. The mythical one. I've seen this play out over and over and over again. You've got 10 possible mates, and eight of them you move away right because of the way that they look. And then the remaining two, you pray that they're going to have a heart for Christ. And then move towards one of them in that direction, hoping for the one, bringing all the expectations of a savior towards your spouse. They, they can't bear that weight. Y'all know how I knew my wife was the one? Because she said, yes, there's one of her, the one. And you're like, oh, how romantic. It's okay, my wife's watching. How romantic. Well, yeah, maybe not, but... On January 9th, 2009, I made a promise in front of a cloud of witnesses with the Bible that no matter what happened, no matter what trial, what disease, what pestilence came my way, I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying. I'm yours forever. You're mine forever. That's love. Because love is a command, it's not a feeling. Yo, your hormones are good, lust is good, you're gonna lust after your spouse, but that's not gonna give you staying power. Love is a command, it's not a feeling. You don't fall out of love. Young people, you need to hear this so you have a clear idea, a sober idea of what marriage is about. When I came into my marriage as a recovering alcoholic, I had all kinds of sin issues, father wounds. I mean, if I were to put that on her, my need for affirmation, my need for respect, I'm gonna put a burden on her that she cannot carry. Only Jesus can carry that. If you're unhappy in your marriage, it's because you have misplaced expectations. Your expectations are too high and your love is low. You need to flip them such that your love is high and your expectations are low. What about our identity now in sex? It, it's, it's, uh, you are, or a person is, their sexual identity. Again, very dangerous. And I'm going to save that, I'm gonna save that for uh, sexuality in the gospel this summer. Um, but let me leave you with this. I am not a heterosexual that has nothing to do with my identity. That has nothing to do with who I am as a man. I am a man. I have desires. God says that those desires are best fulfilled. Those desires are best met in the covenant relationship with one female. He says this is how you will most flourish and enjoy the greatest happiness. That's it. We don't have an identity through who we choose to be with intimately. It's, it's disastrous. It's a lie. 
So let me ask you this. How many of you in the last week were anxious, worried, nervous, fearful? Preacher's the only one? Okay. All right, thank you. Yeah, woke up this morning, 3 a.m., thinking about this sermon. Why? Fear of man, because I want to know what they're going to think of me. Fear of God, because I'm getting ready to teach God's word. What's going on in my heart? Where are the desires that I'm turning into demands? And the same with you. Anytime you are anxious, worried, fearful, nervous, it gives you a chance to look into your heart and say, what am I valuing more than God? Such that if I don't get it or I do get it, I will lose my mind. Those are good things. Those are good feelings. Guilt, it's a good feeling. It allows us to go back to our hearts and look what we've placed in the throne of our heart that is not the Savior. Psalm 16.4, the sorrows of those who have run after other gods will be multiplied. The lowercase g gods in our life are created things, and we put them in our heart, and sense they are created things. They're shifting. They move. And so you're always up and down. The double-minded man of James, always up and down, never steady through life. So how do we live under divine protection? How do we do this? We rejoice in eternal things first and foremost. When Jesus sends out disciples in uh, Luke chapter 10, he sends them out. They go out and they do wonderful things. They heal people. They cast out demons. They come back happy. They come back rejoicing of all the things they've done. And Jesus says to them, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Do you see that? Don't rejoice in your work. Don't rejoice in the things that you do. That's fleeting. It will end at some point. You cannot climb the ladder anymore. But yet, if Jesus and his gift to you, his free gift, your name written in the book of life is imprinted upon your heart as your ultimate goal, desire, then none of those created things matter. You are free from having to perform. Isn't that good news? Breathe out. You don't have to chase after the stuff. You don't have to chase after the created stuff. You can chase after the creator. It's much more enjoyable. And so Psalm 91 begins to start to make a little bit more sense because God is interested in protecting the part of you that lasts forever, the eternal you, your soul. All those promises line up to God caring for, protecting, guarding, keeping the part of you that lasts forever. The eternal part, he's got it. It's signed, sealed, saved for eternity. All the while, gently, yet forcibly removing those things in you that he doesn't like. The idols that we hold close to our hearts, God will burn those away. I always like to say that our hypocrisy window shrinks. I talked to this men in prison about this. When you first accept Christ, your hypocrisy window is really high, right? 
I mean, you're, you're, you're coming to Christ, but you don't really know yet what it works like, and, and you're in here in church, and you're, you know how to say the right things, but maybe you're watching stuff on the computer screen that you shouldn't be watching. Maybe you're, you're looking at the opposite sex a little too long, and then eventually it begins to shrink. The whole life is a shrinking process until your actions line up with God's word. And that's what sanctification is all about. Look at verse 14. I want to point something out here. The grammar changes in verse 14. It changes from David speaking to the Lord to the Lord speaking through an oracle to the psalmist. Because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high. Because he has known my name, he will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With a long life, I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. Saints, verse 15, huge, huge. I will be with him in trouble. It doesn't say I will keep him from trouble, keep her from trouble. It says I will be with you in trouble. God is gonna permit trouble in your life so that you'll be a person who is better equipped to handle trouble. And yet he's with you the whole time during those times of trouble. He's with us, and we can draw peace and joy from that idea, from the living God, from a God who is there to guard and protect and guide your soul. Isn't that better than happiness, isn't it? Because happiness is fleeting. It can be taken in a second, but joy Joy, no one can take. You decide if you're going to have joy. Paul represents this the best. I mean, his, his opponents could not get at Paul. I would think I'd be pulling my hair out if I was one of Paul's opponents. We'll kill you to die as gain. We'll let you live to live as Christ. We'll throw you in jail. Give me a hymn I'll convert all your guards. We'll torture you. I don't compare the present afflictions to the future glory. Unflappable. How amazing is that, right? I see seven heads nodding. You're with me. Okay, cool. So basically, in prison, how did Paul convert the jailers? Singing hymns. Singing psalms. I don't know about you, but I'd probably be like, oh, man, what's going on? Get my lawyer grumbling, complaining. No, no, not Paul, singing songs, walking through life, singing hymns. The joy, that's going to convert people to Jesus Christ. Do you have joy in every circumstance in your life? You can. If you remove the idols of your heart, the lowercase g gods that you're chasing after, and place Jesus Christ in the center of your throne. Oh, David got this in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I looked up all the translations for the next verse. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I shall not be in want. I have all that I need. I lack nothing. I will never be in need. I don't need a thing. It pretty much covers it, doesn't it? How to have joy, how to live under divine protection, to know that God is taking care of you, transforming you, molding you, safeguarding the eternal portion of you 
while removing the parts of you that are in rebellion against God. And when something happens as you look out in your life and the, the bad things come and the trials come, because they will, you can view them with rejoice as James does. You can view them with joy. Consider it all joy when trials come, knowing that it will perfect you through your endurance to possess your soul. And when we don't understand why God is letting something occur or happen in our lives, we can answer in the words of John Calvin, where God has closed his holy mouth, I will be afraid to open mine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is a lamp to our feet. Your word opens our eyes. Show us the things that we are worshiping in place of you. Where, where are our idols? I ask that you point those out in each of us, Father, and continue to guide us in understanding divine protection. In Jesus' name, amen.